Chapter Fourteen of Stories in Gray. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brandy Morgan. Stories in Gray by Barry Payne. Miniatures Part One: The Remedy. The morning was fresh and cool, with a promise of great heat to come later. The street of the drowsy village was almost deserted. Nothing in it was very active except the butcher's cart, always more active than other carts. The children were at school. Old people stood at their doorways, waiting for a chance to tell a passer-by that the weather promised to be a scorcher. A neat little old lady came out of a neat little house at the top of the street and across a neat little garden in front of it. It was all in keeping. Given the house, you could have constructed the woman given the woman you could have constructed the garden. She paused at the gate to explain to her cat that he must not come with her. The cat was horribly bored and never had any intention of going with her. Then she went on her way with a slight smile on her timid, patient face and her leather handbag grasped firmly. The smile met with responsive smiles as she went along. Any of the people at the doorways would have told you who she was and that she did any amount of good. She spent more of her small income on others than on herself. She was free to nurse anyone who happened to be ill, an accommodating banker to anyone who happened to be poor. She had never been able to pass a child crying in the street without stopping to find out what was the matter, and to put it right if possible. The curate, a pleasant-looking bronzed man, stopped for a brief chat with her. She was sure that there was not going to be any rain. She kept a bunch of seaweed and went by that. The talk turned to church work. "'I suppose,' said the curate, "'you are out on your errands of mercy as usual.' The old lady's face changed. For a moment there was a look of horror and of desperate resentment. "'I can do nothing,' she said. "'In that way I have been at it so long, and it still goes on, suffering everywhere. To try to abate it is like trying to clear a desert by picking up the grains of sand. There is only one thing—' She broke off abruptly, opening her handbag and producing a box of sweetmeats. "'You will have one of these,' she said earnestly. "'Thanks very much,' said the curate. "'I never eat sweet things, and I mustn't rob your favorite children.' As she passed on, he paused and looked after her. Really, she had been rather queer. At the end of the street she met a little girl crying and heard her story. The little girl had a very bad toothache, so bad that the teacher had allowed her to go home from school. "'Yes, my dear,' said the little old lady. "'You will have that tooth out, and then another one will ache, and then another. It is the way the world was made. It goes on like that. But do take one of these.' Again she produced her box. The child took one and thanked her. Once clear of the village, a tramp of great judgment saw that this was a suitable opportunity. He began a plain, manly statement that he had walked from Manchester and had not tasted food for three days, and that God knew he was willing to work if only he could find a job. The old lady gave him a shilling. "'Yours is a very sad case, my man,' she said, "'and I have no delusions about it. The shilling will do you no real good. By tomorrow or next day you will be just as poor and just as hungry unless—' "'But won't you take one of these?' The tramp hesitated. 
still she had given him a shilling and it would do no harm to humour her he took a couple of sweetmeats from the box thrust him into his large dirty mouth and touched his cap the old lady went on her way further on she found a woman the mother of far too many children who complained bitterly the old lady heard her story to the end yes she said it is as you say there is a great deal of suffering in the world i am quite powerless to alleviate it but i think you should take one of these and again the box was produced from the handbag on her way home the old lady passed the tramp again he was lying under the hedge and he was dead she stood a moment looking at him without horror and with a mild interest and then went back to the neat little house in the neat little garden there she sat and waited for the police they sent her to broadmoor of course in the hospital garden the little grey monkey sat up on the bow of the lebbek handling meditatively the slender chain that limited his freedom his wise blinking eyes looked out toward the desert and saw the sand clouds dim in the distance soon soon undoubtedly the camcene would be here and the last of the tourist would go the camcene a hot dust-laden wind blows so the cops say from their easter until their pentecost it keeps its appointment with fair accuracy as a rule but after all tourists did not concern the monkey very much one or two of them came now and again on a visit to hakim basha and he had heard them in heated argument with superfluous guides in the road beyond the compound but he was the hospital monkey not one of those that earn their bread and their masters in front of hotel verandas at a loss of personal dignity but the monkey of a small but scientific and also religious establishment true the little hospital had not the extent or the equipment of the great hospital of casaraline but it was doing good work it considered the soul as well as the body of the patient the residential monkey at such a place has a position and he deserved it he never bit and he never scratched he accepted the proffered nut with solemn civility if he was somewhat of a philosopher that may have been due to the fact that two or three conflicting religions all in excellent working order were going on under his very nose and to the philosophy may be ascribed his habits of reserve he did not come when he was called unless it was to the soft cooing voice of the little blind girl if any other would pet him or play with him he retired gently up the tree turned his back and thought deeply he was well aware too that if you keep in the shade and move rapidly the snapshot photograph of you will hardly repay development he certainly had the air of knowing much he would look over a group of natives as though he diagnosed which of the common plagues of egypt brought them there this one was eyes and that one also was eyes this was tubercular and that would be treated with a dose of thymol that would startle a european practitioner perhaps he was not always accurate the first day the pretty blind girl had called him from her seat on the turf under the lebbek tree he had come to her at once and had seen that it was her eyes which troubled her but that was not all nor was it the worst of the trouble the grey monkey turned to the garden beneath him there stretched the hedge of hibiscus a glory of scarlet flames beyond there glimmered faintly in the sun the creamy white of the oleander on the seat below the lebbek tree snored a fat native woman old and past at thirty-five but nowhere could be seen the pretty blind girl 
and this was now the second day that she had not been in the garden the second day that she had never called to him he may be acquitted of low motives it is true that she fed him but their friendship dated from the day when she came in and she had nothing to give then she subjugated the hospital in a few hours it may have been because she was so pretty or because her cooing laugh was so musical or because all her ways were charming or because it was so sad that she had lost her sight and was like to lose her life as well she became a general pet and the monkey was her special pet and she did not come to him empty-handed the monkey blinked gravely he could not think what had happened to her the reader has guessed of course inside the hospital all was over it was the last chance and it had failed the doctor went on to other cases where his skill might be of better service the hard-featured Englishwoman, who did the work of three and hated sentimentality, was compelled to be angry with herself. If she was going to—well, to be stupid, every time a little native girl died, of what use was she likely to be? As the evening came rapidly on, the monkey made up his mind on two points. Obviously his friend was quite well again. The doctor had given her back her sight, and she had gone home. The second conclusion was that the swivel of his chain could be negotiated. It was dusk when he negotiated it, and slipped through the tamarisk hedge over the wall to look for the blind girl. Among the mud huts, quick eyes saw him. He heard the scream of excited voices, and felt the shower of stones. He fell from the roof to the ground, and, well, that ends his story. Nor may we suppose that he and his playfellow will meet again. The two or three religions that he daily contemplated are agreed upon that point. Reassurance Now then, said the man sternly when she had glanced through the letter. I always knew this would happen one day, she said quietly. Yes, he wrote it. He wrote others, and I destroyed them. It was careless of me to let this fall into your hands. Well, what will you do? I don't know, said the man. I think I shall kill you. That would be one way, she said drearily, tearing the letter in her hands into little pieces as she spoke. Perhaps it would be the best way for me. Not for you, nor— The man interrupted her. I shan't kill you till I've wrung the truth out of you. You would never believe the truth now if you heard it. Tell it me. The truth is that I love you. She dropped the little bits of torn letter, a few at a time, into the basket by her writing-table. "'Indeed,' the man sneered. "'And that letter? Is it so hard to explain? Vanity at the age of forty-one requires a little reassurance. The letter was a form of reassurance. I am forty-one, you know, even if I don't quite look it.' "'And you dare tell me that you love me?' He seemed less resolute. There had been sincerity in her voice and look as she spoke. "'I do, I do, I do. I think there are just two people in the world for whom I would give my life. Mona is one, and you are the other. You and I have been married for twenty years, and romance does not live as long as that. We may as well admit that and not grumble at it. It's silly to grumble at the inevitable. But if ardent romance is gone, love has not.' The rock is colder than the flame, but the rock endures. You are the father of my Mona. I nursed you when you were so ill. 
I've had pride in your success and been ever so sorry when you were disappointed. You do many things for me every day. We suit one another and we don't quarrel. I know you so well, too. I often know just what you will say before you speak. I know you all by heart and in my heart. How could I help loving you? And you loved me, too. Until this, strangely enough, I believe that you loved me, although... Yes, yes. Listen, please. I must go through with this. You say that what you have told me is true. Now I must know the rest of the truth. Tell me about this man. Tell me everything that... He stopped abruptly, as a servant entered the room with a telegram. His face changed as he read it. He said quietly that he would send the answer himself later. As the servant closed the door again and the woman sprang from her place, "'It's bad news.' "'It's bad news,' she said. "'I know it. I read it in your face. It's Mona, isn't it?' "'Yes. A serious accident. They want you to come at once.' He glanced at the clock. You will have just enough time to catch the 3.30. Be quick. I'll see about the carriage for you. She was soon ready. He found her standing before her dressing table, crying. My Mona, she said. She was to have come home for her birthday tomorrow. I'd be buying things for her. I'd... Don't, he said gently. Come now, please. She looked at him. Why? she said. Are you coming too? Yes, I'm coming with you. She could not speak, but her lips made the word, thanks. One hand stole out and just touched his sleeve, lightly and shyly. A month later, they were still away from home. During that month, Mona had come very near to death and had turned backward to life again. She was near now to complete recovery. One day she told her mother, that the really glorious thing was that the accident had not in any way injured her personal appearance. "'You're quite beautiful,' said her mother. "'But you mustn't be vain. There's nothing more natural or more dangerous.' "'But why dangerous?' "'Because when you grow to be an old woman like me—' "'But you're not the least little bit old.' "'Listen, if you're vain when you grow to be an old woman, just exactly like me—' You may want reassurance. You understand that? Not the least bit. I didn't think you would. Mona laughed. That evening in the garden, the woman found her husband and sat down by his side. Mona's getting on splendidly, she said. She will come down tomorrow. The man looked at her with kindly eyes. They had been through fire together, and he saw her heart as proved gold. He drew her to him and kissed her and she sighed the happy sigh of a forgiven woman. Of that letter and its writer no word was ever spoken again by either of them. He asked for no confession, and she made none. The years passed on with placid happiness for them. THE LUCKY WOMAN When they were respectively the ages of eighteen and nineteen, it becomes necessary for the two misadventures to do something for themselves. They were orphans, and they divided between them the fortune of fifty pounds a year. The elder and the plainer of the two, Ellen Venner, took her own strong line at once. She married a dissenting minister and made for herself a little home at Brixton. The more vulgar of her acquaintances said that it was no great catch. Beatrice, 
the younger sister was fortunate enough to obtain the post of governess to mrs pauling's three dear little boys moreover she retained her post and won for herself some portion of the respect and good will of mr and mrs pauling the three dear little boys kicked her with almost unnecessary profusion and learnt very little from her but then boys will be boys and if we are to be frank it must be admitted that beatrice venner had very little to teach she had good food she had thirty pounds a year over and above her private income she had occasional holidays and two evening dresses and in course of time still a further blessing was to befall her the further blessing came when she had been with the paulings for about four years and it was beginning to be said by papa and mamma that the eldest of the dear little boys certainly ought to go to school now as he was by far the hardest and most persistent kicker of the three beatrice heard this without regret a governess would still be wanted for the other two it was at this time that mr pauling's old friend mr yardley came to stay at the house mr yardley was a youth of about forty-five by profession a stockbroker unmarried priding himself somewhat on gallant manner with the ladies he was chubby tubby and clean-shaven his hair was very thin on top of his head and he took something for it he had an income of two thousand pounds a year and the most commonplace mind in the city and he enjoyed both of them thoroughly he was a mind that would never make a fortune or come to wreck he was distinctly satisfied with himself i do not know whether his friends and intimate relations had told him so or whether he had found it all out for himself but at the moment when he came on that visit to the paulings the decision was firm and hot within him that he must not lead this gay butterfly life any longer he must settle down his gallant but perfectly polite eye fell upon beatrice venner in the drawing-room after dinner he inquired if she was fond of music and added as he always did that he himself was devoted to it though he was no performer pulled up somewhat short by beatrice's frank confession that she did not care for music in the least he added with a reasonable desire to please that he himself knew that there were other things and that he could get along very well without it the conversation passed to other topics that day and the next day and the next it was quite obvious to mrs pauling that mr yardley was paying marked attention to the governess there was no illegitimate secrecy about the man that evening in the smoking-room he explained portentously to mr pauling his decision to marry mr pauling's governess good heavens you don't say so said mr pauling well he added she's a very good girl and this will be a rare bit of luck for her beatrice venner accepted the rare bit of luck with meekness and gratitude it was true that she was not in the least in love with mr yardley but she admired his income and his other estimable qualities certainly too she was not in love with anybody else she received many congratulations the letter from her sister ellen was of somewhat of a subacid character implying that she did not expect that they would see much of beatrice down at brixton after this she also added that conscientious scruples would not allow her husband and herself to be present at a wedding in a church this did not prevent beatrice from being married in a church in a beautiful white dress and a beautiful lace veil with two bridesmaids 
with the youngest Pauling boy as a page, with the voice that breathed o'er Eden, and generally speaking with pomp. She was quite happy in a placid way for some time after her marriage, and she did not drop her sister down at Brixton. Beatrice had no children, and her sister had many. Beatrice thought of adopting one of them. Her husband, kindly but firmly, thought not. She had been married eight years, and the edge of the luxuries had worn off. Her remarkable luck had become quite commonplace, and she was beginning to find her husband a very slow man, with a tendency to hypochondria. And one day she went to Brixton to her sister's squalid abode, to play a game with her sister's new baby, which was a perfect beauty. She was late in returning and found that her husband had already got back from the city and was going round the gardens. It was springtime, and she found him standing in the orchard, his frock coat and his silk hat still on him, looking grotesquely out of place. He pointed out the fruit prospects with gravity, and with some knowledge of the subject. "'It's a queer thing,' he said, "'that this one tree has no blossom on it at all.' "'I'm glad,' she snapped furiously. He stared at her with his little eyes wide open. "'No, I am not glad.' she added quickly, and pressed her lips to the rough bark of the tree and kissed it. "'My dear child,' he said in gentle remonstrance, "'have you gone quite mad?' "'No,' she said, "'but I think I shall.' Then she ran into the house, and he followed laboriously to inquire what she was crying about. End of chapter 14